Christians and uh, the need to establish a legacy of righteousness is addressed by Psalm 78. Now we're going to come to a different kind of crisis, and I don't know exactly what to call this one. I don't know exactly what the best name for it is. Some people would call it a mental health crisis, uh, whatever you want to call it. There is no question that our culture is mentally and emotionally disturbed. We are not well uh, as a culture. We are not stable. Uh, there are all kinds of ways of measuring this. We've got more people, uh, especially women, uh, taking antidepressants than we've ever had. Uh, we've got more people than ever, it seems, seeking to numb themselves with drugs or with excessive alcohol use. Deaths of despair, as they're called, have been slowly climbing and then uh, skyrocketed with COVID. It seems there is a cloud of darkness, a kind of hopelessness engulfing our culture. We're not a happy culture. We're not characterized by joy. In fact, if anything, we're a very unhappy culture. We're a very sick culture. Uh, personally, I know more people who have died of suicide uh, over the last two years than any other uh, kind of death. I know more people who have died of suicide than died of COVID, just in terms of people I'm connected with, not in my family or in my church, but connected in some way with my family or connected with my church. I know of multiple tragic suicides. I could share with you one heartbreaking story after another. Uh, it, it's, it's just a sign. It's a symptom of where we are. And I believe this is the real epidemic. It's an epidemic of depression, of despair, of hopelessness, of suicidal ideation, of substance abuse. It is a crisis, and it impacts the culture all around us, and it also impacts the church. Christians are not immune. Uh, if we haven't dealt with this ourselves or in our families, we certainly know people who have. But thankfully, as God's people, we have been given the tools we need to lead others out of the depths of despair. Now, many times when people struggle with despair or with depression, the causes are easy to identify. And the solution is essentially repentance. You know, it's not surprising that people who are living deeply sinful lifestyles are full of despair. That's just what we would expect. I talked about uh, at the beginning of the last session, people who are living contrary to God's design for family life. It's not surprising that when they go against the grain of God's creation, God's created design, God's created order, they get splinters. Obviously, that, uh, that, that, that kind of thing is going to happen. That's what you would expect. But there's a lot more going on. Uh, sometimes people suffer depression or what would have been called melancholy uh, in past times. And sin is not the issue. Their sin is not the issue. And repentance is not the solution, or at least it's not really the key thing. There's something else going on. So we need to be aware uh, we need to be aware of the lessons of Psalm 88, which we're going to look at here in just a minute, because Psalm 88 can help us to lead ourselves and to lead ones we love and to lead others in the world to a better place. Uh, if you're struggling with any kind of darkness, depression, or melancholy, once again, the psalmist can help. So let's turn to Psalm 88, and I'll read this for us. <clears throat> psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the chief musician, set to Mahalath Leonoth, a contemplation of Heman the Ezraite. Lord God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. 
Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more and who are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Selah. You have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I've called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Selah. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But to you I've cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Again, let us pray. Father, you have given us this psalm that we might understand your goodness to us, even in the hardest of times, even in the darkness. So Father, help us to understand this psalm, how it might apply to our own lives in times of despair. Uh, When we find ourselves very despondent, help us to better understand this psalm that we can help others uh, to find your goodness, to find your light in places of darkness as well. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'll tell you this about Psalm 88. I once had a friend who was suffering from depression, and so I read to my friend Psalm 88, and he said, yes. He said, I've never been able to put into words how I feel, but that psalm does it. That describes, that articulates exactly how I am, fe- how I am feeling. Uh, and I think that's important for us to recognize, especially for those of us who have never struggled with depression of that sort. Psalm 88 is really important and it's really unique. Let me see if I can set this up for you. The Psalter, of course, is the songbook and the prayer book of the Bible. Uh, It's got all different kinds of prayers, prayers that thank and praise God, prayers that are overflowing with joy and gratitude. It's got prayers that confess sin. It's got prayers that call on God to act in some way. And it's got prayers of lament. Now, what's interesting is that roughly one out of three of the Psalms are lamentations. Psalm 88 is obviously a lamentation. It is a sad song, uh, a song of pain. But this is what's interesting. Virtually all of those Psalms of lament come to some kind of resolution before you get to the end. So the Psalm will go deep into despair and then it will bounce back. So the Psalm ends, the Psalm of lament will end on a note of hope and even joy. The one who prays through his pain ultimately finds some kind of encouragement, and so the psalm ends on a high note. Psalm 88 is unique among the psalms of lament in that it does not end with a word of hope. There is no bounce back in Psalm 88. In fact, in Hebrew, the last word of the psalm is the word darkness. Verse 18, he says, my only companion, my only friend is darkness. This psalm ends in the dark. The title tells us this psalm was written by Heman. 
Uh, we know from the title and from First Chronicles that Heman was a descendant of Korah and worked in the tabernacle during the time of David. The sons of Korah became the chief musicians in Israel. They were the leaders of the choir and the orchestra. So Heman led a guild of musicians. He was kind of a chief musician in ancient Israel. These are the musicians who would lead Israel's musical praise. He's in charge of those musicians. Now, Psalm 88 is the only psalm uh, that is composed by him, at least according to the titles in the Psalter. It's the only psalm composed by Heman. Uh, so you could say Heman was kind of a one-hit wonder. Uh, well, I don't know if this one was a hit, actually. Uh, but uh, this is the only one we know of. There are other psalms that are attributed to the sons of Korah. Uh, so he may have had a hand in those. But this is the only one attributed to him. So if this was your only song, well, it's, it's a pretty dark song. Uh, the psalm is shocking because we don't think spiritual leaders should talk this way with such despair and despondency. In fact, we don't think any believer should talk this way. It's as if Heman says in this psalm, I am miserable and I'm never going to be happy again. The darkness is too dark. The darkness is too thick. It is hopeless. God is doing nothing for me. We hear those words as modern American Christians, and we tend to think that they are unspiritual. Who thinks those kinds of thoughts? That's our tendency. You know, we think if somebody is depressed in this way, they must be in sin, or they must be immature, or they must be a millennial taking a mental health day. You know, uh, that's just how it looks. Imagine a pastoral candidate for your church who talked this way about God. Would that be the guy you want to hire? I don't think so. That's the thing. We look at this psalm, and for a lot of us, it feels very alien. It feels very foreign, and it feels like there's something wrong with it. How can you have a psalm that ends in the dark? But I would guess, and I'm guessing here, but I, I know this would be the case in my congregation, so it's probably a pretty good guess about yours. I would guess there are some of you that read this psalm, and you say, yeah, I've been there. Or maybe even say, I am there. This is how I am feeling right now. You can relate to Heman's words. Because Heman's words are a lot like thoughts you've been having or words you've been saying. You could make Heman's song your own because you're in this kind of pain and you're wondering where God is. This psalm has three sections and each one is full of despair. Each section is marked out with the words, Yahweh or Lord, I cry out to you. So you can see these markers in verse 1, verse 9, and verse 13. In verse 1, he says, I cry out to you. And then he gives his reasons for crying out to God. He's crying out to God because God is the God of salvation. So he brings his prayer before the Lord, and he's expecting salvation. Why is this? Well, verse 3, he says his soul is full of trouble. This is why he's crying out. This is why he needs God's salvation. He says he's on the edge of death. He's about to fall into the grave. In fact, if you look at verses 4 and 5, it looks like he He's a dead man already, like he's been buried alive. He has no strength. He's been cut off from God's hand. He's in darkness. God's wrath is upon him. There is no sense of God's love, only a sense of God's wrath and God's anger. He says God's waves are coming over him. So he shifts his imagery from being buried in the ground to drowning in a flood. It's like there's another flood, but he's outside of Noah's ark. Verse 8, he says he's been separated from all his companions. He is abhorrent to them. He's trapped. He cannot escape. You know, there are fewer things more painful than broken relationships, but Heman here has experienced 
broken relationships. He is friendless. He has been forsaken by all his old companions. There are no friends or family gathering around Heman to help him in his time of need. He is all alone. The second section begins in verse 9 with another cry to God. He says he's cried out daily, so it's not like he just prayed once and then gave up. He's been praying continually. He's reached his hand out to God, but God won't take hold of his hand. Imagine reaching out to God, but God doesn't grab hold of your hand. That's how Heman feels. He's seeking God, but it's as if God is hiding from him. And then he asks a series of very pointed questions. It's like he wants to cross-examine God in a courtroom. Uh, think about what Job does in the book of Job, where Job has certain questions he wants to ask God. That's how Heman is. And these questions mostly have to do with death. Will you work wonders among the dead? Can your mercy be declared from the grave? Can your wonders be seen in the dark? Can your righteousness be known in the land of the forgotten? Basically, he's saying, God, if you let me slip into the grave, I cannot praise you there. What good could possibly come out of death? Everything will be lost. Death is the tide that washes everything away. Death raises all kinds of questions about God, about God's intentions, about God's promises, about God's power, about God's mercy. If God is the God of salvation, as Heman has identified him in verse 1, then why doesn't he save his own? It makes no sense. Heman is perplexed. He's dumbfounded by death. And he is agonizing over this. Then the third cry comes to the Lord in verse 13. He prays, but his prayers are not being answered. Lord, why have you cast off my soul? Why have you thrown my soul away into the trash heap? He feels like, you know, God's taking out the garbage and I'm part of it. That's how God is treating me. He says, God, why do you hide your face from me? I've been so afflicted, I'm ready to die. He sees no point in continuing to live. Heman has become suicidal in some way. There's some suicidal ideation going on here. He's lost the will to live. Life is no longer worth living for him. God's fierce wrath terrorizes him. God's terrors engulf him. He's up to his neck in trouble, and the troubles keep rising. Verse 18, he says, loved ones and friends, you have put far from me. You have left me all alone. Again, he's saying, I have no community. I have no one. He says, my only friend is the darkness. That's how the psalm ends. My only companion is the darkness. This psalm ends in the dark with no light and with no answers. A lot of questions have been asked, but no answers are forthcoming. Three times the psalm mentions darkness, verse 6, verse 12, and verse 18. The psalm is full of darkness from beginning to end. There's really only one petition in the psalm, only one thing he asks God to do, and that is verse 2, and that is to listen. He says, listen to me, incline your ear to me. Hema just wants somebody to listen. He wants to be heard. He wants somebody to hear his cry. He wants God to acknowledge him and acknowledge his trauma and his depression and his despondency and his hopelessness and his fear. But most of the psalm is simply describing the ways in which God has not answered him. Indeed, the ways in which God has afflicted him and disappointed him and failed him. And so you come to the end of the psalm and it seems there is no deliverance in sight. For many of us, this psalm is undoubtedly disturbing because it does not have the happy ending we expect. I think this is a problem for us 
because we don't really know how to deal with our pain. We don't really know how to deal with other people's pain. We don't do pain and disappointment well in the modern American church. We tend to think that the, you know, I know we would all reject the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. We would reject that just on theological grounds. And yet we have a tendency to lean in that direction, to, to, to lean towards a kind of prosperity gospel where we think if somebody is talking this way, there must be something wrong with them. If they're letting their pain show this much and they're this hopeless and this despondent, there must be something wrong because if you were living right, you wouldn't feel this way, okay? Very subtly, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel has worked its way in and we kind of think in those categories. But Haman here is showing us this isn't true. There, there's no reason to think that Heman's suffering is due to any, any sin that he's committed. He seems to be a godly man. This is a godly man expressing the depth of his anguish. This is a man who's crying out to God morning and evening without ceasing for a long, long time and still never getting an answer. He asks God why again and again, and he never gets an answer. He has to live with God's silence. He has to live with these unanswered questions. He has to live with the pain. And again, there is no indication in the psalm that this suffering is due to sin. He seems to be a man who has done everything right, who's still doing everything right, even though everything has gone wrong for him. All of his hopes are dashed, all of his expectations unfulfilled, all of his community lost. He's facing both inner and outer darkness. You've got the inner darkness of mental and emotional anguish. He's got no sense of God's presence in his life. All he can feel is God's wrath against him. So there's this inner darkness, but there's also an outer darkness. We're not told the specifics of his suffering, but his circumstances external to him are very painful. Obviously, his friends have abandoned him. His troubles are increasing you know, what do we do with this? Again, a lot of American Christians, I think, are very naive about suffering. We don't know how to process this kind of pain. Sometimes we wonder if we're even allowed to acknowledge this kind of pain. We think we'll be stoics and we'll kind of grin it and bear it with a stiff upper lip. Or we think we'll put on our happy face and act like everything's okay, even when it's not, even when there's clearly something wrong. We just don't know how to deal with hard things like this when we feel this bad or this despondent. We expect things to go well and we're shocked when they don't. And of course that only aggravates the pain because the gap between our expectation and our reality is so wide. I mean, you don't have to be in Joel Osteen's church to think you ought to be living your best life now. That's just kind of a default that we have. We tend to think life should go well, that it's normal to be comfortable, that we should be pain-free, that the normal Christian life is a pain-free life. That's how we've been trained to think in our culture I would say, including in the church, the American church is not known for dealing well with people who are broken, people who are shattered, people who are hurting or hopeless or depressed or lonely, people who are mentally depressed or who have experienced some form of terrible abuse. Uh, many of us just kind of screen out something like Psalm 88 because it doesn't fit our categories. But again, for others of you, I know Psalm 88 is all too familiar. You've dealt with this darkness, you've experienced this kind of depression, this kind of inexplicable suffering. You can identify with Heman's words. And like Heman, you want answers. You've felt the darkness, you've tasted it, the inner and outer darkness. You've felt the aloneness where your friends and even your God seem to have abandoned you. 
And it seems all that's left is God's wrath. Waves of God's anger seem to be washing over you. You know, there are some people who think a true Christian can never get depressed. That's not true. There are a lot of great Christian men who have suffered from depression. You could point to this psalm and other places in the Psalter. Uh, I think a good example of this from church history is that great 19th century London pastor, the Reformed Baptist, Charles Spurgeon. He was undoubtedly one of the greatest preachers to ever live. But he struggled with depression or what they in those days called melancholy for much of his life. Uh, One of Spurgeon's most famous works is his three-volume commentary on the Psalter, the Treasury of David, and it's a wonderful commentary. It's really interesting. If you look at his commentary on Psalm 88, it seems a lot of his comments on Psalm 88 are thinly veiled autobiography. Spurgeon says there, the mind can descend lower than the body. The mind can can go through a kind of suffering uh, that's even greater than what the body can endure. He says, physically, there is no such thing as a bottomless pit, but mentally there is. Physically, you can only die one death, but mentally you can die a thousand deaths every day. We can suffer in our bodies, but even more in our spirit. Suffering in your body can only go to a point and then you die, but suffering in your spirit can go on and on and on. You can die thousands of deaths every day mentally or in your spirit. But Spurgeon points out that such suffering does not mean that you are lost or even that you lack faith. Yes, God is the God of the happy, but he is also the God of the depressed. God gives joy, but he can also give grief. If Psalm 88 is your prayer, then I would say the church ought to be the place for you because the church ought to always be a place for broken and hurting People, people who need help, uh, who need rescue, because the church has the tools, the church has the resources to help people in just those kinds of situations. It doesn't mean all the sadness or the despair goes away, but we have the tools and the resources to deal with those kind of situations. We just don't avail ourselves of those tools and resources very often. I think all too often the church does a really bad job of ministering to people who are suffering in the way Spurgeon described his own suffering. Why is this psalm even in the Bible? Why is such a hopeless prayer in the Bible? Why didn't God censor this prayer? If you think about sitting down, you know, say you had a bunch of you know, hymns to choose for a Christian hymnal, and Psalm 88 was put in front of you, would you choose this one? It's, oh, yes, we've got to have Psalm 88. We've got to have this, you know, this song of Heman. Uh, we want God's people singing a song that ends in utter darkness. Why did this prayer become part of Israel's sung repertoire? Why did it make the cut for Israel's hymn book? Again, I don't think a modern hymnal uh, would have taken this hymn. I I don't think it would have made the cut. God included this prayer in the canon to show us that he is okay with his people praying this way. He is not ashamed to identify us when we pray this way, when we ask him hard questions. Heman is blunt, he is honest, he is raw, he voices his frustrations, he raises tough issues and tough questions. God has included this psalm in the canon because God wants us to know he is still our God, even when we are desperate. Even in the darkness, he is still our God. God is our God, even when we endure depression. God is not afraid of the dark. God is the God of the darkness, every bit as much as he is the God of the light. And he can handle it. He can handle your questions. You are allowed and even invited to pray this way when the situation warrants. God is not afraid of your questions. He wants you to bring these kinds of questions to him. He wants to hear your hardest questions 
questions. God wants you to talk to him from your pain and out of your pain and through your pain. God doesn't want you or need you to put on your happy face and pretend like everything is okay, even when it's not. God is not afraid of the dark. Prolonged periods of anguish and aloneness, prolonged periods of prayers that go unanswered do not mean you're not a real Christian. It doesn't mean you are lost. This psalm shows us that terrible things can happen to a child of God. Children of God can go through terrible suffering and great agony. And so really, this psalm is not just about the darkness. This psalm is also a nightlight that shines into the darkness. This psalm is a tunnel, yes. This psalm will take you deep underground into the darkness, but this this psalm also shows us there is light at the end of the tunnel. Not because this psalm ends on a note of joy, but I would say precisely because it doesn't. Psalm 88 shows us we can turn our pain into prayer. In fact, we can turn our pain into praise. Now, how do we do that? Well, Psalm 88 shows us it's simply by taking it all to God. Talk to Him about your pain. When you do so, yes, you may still feel like you are in the dark, but you are praying in the dark, and that matters. When you're in the dark, what do you do? Pray in the dark. Worship in the dark. When you pray, that's what you're doing. When you pray in the dark, it means you're really worshiping in the dark. You can worship God in the dark. You can worship God in the midst of your despair. Despair can be a form of praise if we take that despair to God. What is Psalm 88 training us to do? What's what's the tool? What's the resource here for those going through such agonizing times? Pray your fears. Pray your questions. Pray through your hopelessness. Pray your frustrations. Pray your anguish. Pray your depression. It's not just that prayers of despair can eventually lead us back around to praise. Perhaps other psalms of lament could be read that way. You know, there's the lament part and then there's the praise part. You know, because in those other psalms of lament, they pull out of the tailspin before the psalm ends, whereas this one doesn't. This psalm is despair from beginning to end, but that's really the whole point. It shows us in the midst of our despair, we can praise God by bringing that despair to God. Articulating your despair in prayer is itself a form of worship. Taking your hurts to God in prayer brings glory to God. That itself is worth knowing. In fact, I realize this is counterintuitive, but I still think it's true. In times of darkness, we often learn more about God's grace and patience than when things are going well. Sometimes it's it's when we're in the midst of a hard time and we feel abandoned by God that we learn the most about who God is and God's grace and mercy and faithfulness. Sometimes God has to take everything away so we can discover what we really have in him. God has to knock all the props out to where only God is left and then you're not even sure you've still got God and then you find out who God really is. For you. Then you come to discover what God's grace and mercy really mean when you're clinging to Him alone and you know there's nothing else. Then you come to know God in a new way. That was certainly the experience of Job. You know, some accused, uh, Satan accused Job of only serving God for the benefits. You know, the only reason that Job signed up to be God's servant is because it came with a great benefits package. You know, that's what Satan says. That's Satan's accusation. Does Job serve God for nothing, he asked. 
Satan is saying, look, Job's only serving you because things are going well, God, so take all of that away, and then let's see what happens. But even when everything was taken away from Job, what did Job do? Job, like Heman, kept crying out to God. Even when God seemed to have abandoned him, even when everything else was taken away, Job and Heman learned to seek God in new ways in the midst of their pain. It matured them. It gave them new insights into who God is. Brushes with darkness can expose our idols and even expose the bankruptcy of our worldview. Um, you know, one of the most famous rock bands of all time was Led Zeppelin, all right? Uh, and of course, Zeppelin was probably known uh, just as much for their partying lifestyle as for the music they made. But it really all came crashing to an end when lead singer Robert Plant, when his young son got sick and died very suddenly. And when Plant reflected on that tragedy and how it brought about the end of the band, he said, back in 77, when my boy died, he said, I really didn't want to go around singing sexually explicit lyrics anymore. He didn't say sexually explicit lyrics. I won't read his lyrics to you because he quoted his own lyrics and probably not fit for a conference like this. But he said, basically, I didn't want to go around singing these sexually explicit lyrics anymore. It didn't have import for me anymore. It just wasn't important. It all seemed worthless. The death of his son and the agony he went through exposed the bankruptcy of his whole way of life, the bankruptcy of his music. Now, as far as I know, Robert Plant did not repent and become a Christian. But what he learned in his agony is important because the death of his son sent him into a period of darkness. It revealed the emptiness of his sexually libertine lifestyle and lyrics that had characterized his life and, and the band. And so he just walked away from all of it. And I would say, by analogy, suffering in our own life, brushes with death, encounters with death, can do the same kind of thing for us, exposing areas in our life where idolatry still has a hold, exposing areas in our worldview that are still contrary to God's word. Time spent in Psalm 88, periods of darkness, can wean us off of our sin and expose the hollowness of our sin. Who can enjoy sin when you've been through this. You just see it. There's nothing about it that's remotely enjoyable. This psalm is called a mascal in the title, which means it is teaching to make one wise. That's the point of this psalm is to grow us in wisdom. Heman became wise through suffering. Heman became wise through his agony. Psalm 88 is a wisdom psalm. This is wisdom literature. We are right to expect a lot from God. Heman's problem is not that he expected too much from God. Heman expected a great deal from God, and that's because God has made big promises, and so we should expect big things from God. And we are right to ask God hard questions when his presence and his promises are nowhere to be found. How can God be God when the righteous suffer? How can God be God when, it doesn't, when he doesn't seem to be doing what he said he would do? He's not doing those God things that he promised to do. How can God be God when he falls silent, when he doesn't respond to our screams and our cries? You know, it's like you want to say, when you're in Heman's position, it's like you want to say to God, hey, God, you know what? You made this promise in Romans 8.28 that you would work all things together for my good. If you're going to work this together for my good, you have got a lot of work to do. So you need to get to work. That's what you want to say to God. You want to say to God, hey, look, if you love me like you say you do, <laughs> you sure got a funny way of showing it. You want to say to God, God, if you're all that I've got, why is it still so hard? God, you're all that I've got, and I'm not even sure I've got you anymore. 
But Psalm 88 shows us God is still God, and God is still faithful, and God is still our God, even when there is not a shred of evidence to back it up. Even when all the evidence seems to be on the other side, God is still our God. He's still the faithful and gracious God. Even when it seems God has abandoned us to the darkness, even then, God is God, and even in the dark, God is good. God is at work and present in our lives, not only when we are happy, not only when things are going well, but even when we are in Haman's position. God works under the cover of darkness as well. You know, Psalm 88, this is not only unique in the book of Psalms, I think it's unique uh, to have a prayer like this, just in terms of all the religions of the world and all the different kinds of prayers that different religions might have, I don't think you'll find any other religion that has a prayer like this. I might be wrong about that, but this is how it looks to me. In fact, what I think you'll typically find in other religions is only the unfaithful would pray this way. You would be condemned for praying this way, for questioning God in this kind of way. In other religions, you're either supposed to treat pain as an illusion or bury it, or you're supposed to rise above it in your own strength. But those are not options for Heman here. That's not what he does. His despair is presented as a form of prayer, as a form of praise. He prays through his despair, and he brings all those questions to God. That's what Heman does. Look again at verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. That's really the most amazing thing about this psalm is that it gets prayed at all. This psalm is an act of of faith. Heman keeps coming to God again and again despite the lack of response. He does not give up on God. I think sometimes we do give up on God and we simply stop praying. We might still talk to others about our problems, but not to God. We don't talk to God about our despair. Rather, we just grumble about how terrible things are. Israel certainly had a habit of doing that. You know, if you have trouble, uh, think about this. You know, if, if you, if you uh, are at a restaurant and you have trouble with your waiter or your, your waitress, you know, if, it's, if it's really, really bad service, you might want to talk to the manager, to the person who is in charge. You know, you've got to take your complaints to the top in order to get them dealt with. Okay? That's what Haman is doing. He's not just talking to other people about his problems because he knows they can't really do anything and he doesn't have any friends left anyway. He's going to the manager. He's going to the top. He's taking all his problems to God. He knows if anybody's going to fix this, it's going to have to be God. If you decide to give up on God and take your troubles elsewhere, that is idolatry. You are going after another God, calling on another God, a God with a small g, to deliver you. You, know, you might turn to gods of pornography or alcohol uh, or some other kind of substance abuse or addiction. But that is not going to take the darkness away. Again, I think the most amazing thing about Heman's prayer is that it gets prayed at all. Why didn't Heman try another God? Why didn't Heman take his, his despair and all his troubles and his darkness somewhere else and see if some other God could help out? He probably could look at people who were worshiping other gods who were a lot better off than him. Gods who seemed to be treating their people a lot better than Yahweh was treating Heman. But he doesn't go to another God. He keeps trying at, crying out to this God, to Yahweh, to the true and living God, to the creator. Even though by all accounts, it seems the creator is ignoring him. It seems God isn't listening. God's not answering. But Heman keeps praying anyway. He knows idols can't help. So he keeps waiting and praying and calling on Yahweh anyway. 
You know, there was a, uh, a, a movement of atheism. It came to be known as protest atheism that arose in the West uh, after World War II, basically because of all of the suffering and the carnage of World War I and then World War II. These are people who just said, well, there must not be a God. And they started to raise questions that, to be honest, sound a lot like the kind of questions that Heman brings before God in this psalm. See, protest atheists would pit God against suffering. And they would say, there cannot be a God. There's no way God exists. Just look at the world. Look at the suffering. Look at the carnage. Look at the bloodshed. Look at the injustice and evil that seems to be prevailing. There must not be a God. Obviously, there is no God because if there were a God, there wouldn't be so much suffering and evil and injustice. Where is God if he exists? God does not answer, and so he must not be there at all. Atheism follows. Look at the suffering. God must not exist. That was basically the argument of the protest atheists. Now, I would push back against that, and I would say the protest atheists were actually contradicting themselves. If God does not exist, we have no business calling anything evil at all uh, because you cannot have good and evil unless you have an ultimate, absolute, personal God who determines those things for us. You just have personal preferences, and uh, you certainly can't, uh, you can't talk about justice at all. So I would say that uh, what the protest atheists were affirming, the existence of evil in the world, actually depends on what they were denying, and that is to say God. So I think their case really falls apart. I don't think they really have a case against God. But I do think they raise some good questions because they raise the same kind of questions that Heman raises here. The protest atheist had a point. Doesn't God have a lot of explaining to do? Doesn't God have a lot to answer for? Well, yeah, I, I would say he does. But actually, God does something even better than give us an explanation of evil. What we might expect in response to the kind of questions that Heman raises or that the protest atheists raise is a kind of philosophical treatise in which God provides all his justifications and answers every question in a logical, rational way and shows us he actually had a good purpose in allowing these bad things to happen. That's what we would expect. And there may be a sense in which God does give that to us in a roundabout way. There are places in scripture that talk about the purpose God has in our pain. But God does something a lot better than give us an explanation for evil. God does something a lot better than answer our questions about evil. You know what God does? God enters into the evil and endures it himself. God responds to our questions and our protests about suffering and about injustice and about evil by taking that suffering and injustice and evil onto himself and enduring them for our sake. See, this is something you need to know about the Psalter. And this is maybe the key to the whole thing. The prayers we have in the Psalms are not just the prayers of men like Heman and David and Asaph. The prayers that we have in the Psalter are ultimately the prayers of Jesus. And he was praying them ahead of time through these inspired servants. Every single prayer you encounter in the Psalm, one way or another, is a prayer of Jesus. This is the prayer book of Jesus. And that means Psalm 88 is not just Heman's prayer, it is Jesus' prayer. Ultimately, this is the prayer of Jesus himself. Heman was just a, a pencil sketch, a kind of outline. Jesus comes along and colors it in and fills it out with himself. He is the one who truly and uniquely suffers what Psalm 88 describes. This is God's answer. Not some rational discourse or philosophical essay that answers all these questions and justifies his ways to 
our minds. No, what does God do? God enters into the suffering and the injustice and the evil himself. He endures all of these things himself in Jesus. In Jesus, God takes all our pain and suffering into himself and makes it his own. He takes all our sin and all we deserve and makes that his own as well. He is the righteous one who suffers on our behalf, the righteous suffering for the unrighteous. That's what Jesus has come to do. He endures God's wrath and God's terrors. Psalm 88 is really about the cross. Jesus prays this psalm. He makes it his own in the depths of his experience, in the agony of his crucifixion. He gathers up all this pain, all this anguish that Heman is talking about. He gathers, gathers it all up into himself at the cross. He makes every lament his own. He makes every question his own. At the cross, Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrows and agony. He is buried under the waves of God's wrath. He is thrown into the pit of the tomb. He calls out to his God and he Here's no answer. He reaches out to God and there is no response. He is forsaken by his father and all his companions. He's betrayed by a close friend. He's abandoned by those he had just shared a meal with. He reaches out to his father and there is no return reach. And I would say most significantly from the sixth hour to the ninth hour on that good Friday, as he hung on the cross, he is covered in darkness. Darkness is his only companion. It ends in darkness. And yet, even in that darkness, Jesus prays and praises. And this is a glorious thing. Jesus does not just allow us to pray about our own God-forsakenness. He experiences the ultimate God-forsakenness himself. And he does it for us. God makes God-forsakenness his own on the cross. So we can say, with Heman, God, I'm hurting. God, I am in agony. And in Jesus, God says back to us, me too. I've been there. I've endured it. I'm hurting too. I'm with you. I've been there and I am there in the midst of your pain. And suddenly we realize, no, we are not alone. God has not actually left us alone in the dark. We might feel all alone, but we are not all alone. And your feelings are not the final say. Your feelings are not the final authority in this matter. It does not matter what you think or what you feel. It matters what God says. It matters what God does. And God is saying here, even when you feel all alone, I am with you. And when you are suffering in agony in this way, if you keep bringing that agony to God, you keep bringing that pain to God, then really we can say you are experiencing what Philippians 3 calls fellowship in his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings, fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. The Lord is always with us in the midst of our afflictions. Jesus suffered alone on the cross, so we won't have to suffer alone. He owns our afflictions. He makes them his. I would tell you, don't be afraid to use Psalm 88 when you need it. It's in the Bible for a reason. Now, I would say if you only pray Psalm 88 type prayers, if this is your only prayer language, then maybe there's something wrong with that. There are all kinds of other Psalms you need to be praying as well. But if you have a season where Psalm 88 is your prayer, 
Well, that's what it's in the, in the Bible for. That's why God has given us this psalm, so that we can articulate our pain and our agony and turn our pain and agony into praise. And in doing so, know that we're not alone because in Jesus, God has endured all this and so much more. Unspeakable grief that Heman knew nothing about. I would also say that if Psalm 88 seems completely foreign to you, if you never pray Psalm 88 type prayers, perhaps not even just on behalf of yourself, but on behalf of others, something's also wrong with that. Because we all need Psalm 88. Even if you can't really identify with Heman's experience, there are other people who can, and you need to pray it on their behalf. Psalm 88 is there when you need it. So you have words to use even when it seems that all is lost. See, I would say Psalm 88, it's got all these questions, and I said they're unanswered questions, but I would say Psalm 88 ultimately does receive an answer. Heman gets the answer to his prayer in Jesus. What is God's answer to Heman's cry? What is God's answer to all of Heman's questions? It's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Jesus fills the gap between what God has promised and what we are experiencing. When God seems distant, Jesus fills that gap between us and God. Jesus is the answer to Heman's questions about death. He has entered the grave and he has come out the other side. He was thrown into the bottomless pit that Heman talks about, but Jesus broke out of it. Heman wondered, can God do wonders in the grave? Can God do wonders in the realm of the dead? Jesus shows us, yes, he can. Because Jesus shows us the greatest wonder of all, God raising the dead. Heman asked, do the dead rise up and praise you? And now we can say, yes, they do. Heman asked, do the dead rise up and praise you? And we can say, yes, you bet they do, because Jesus has overcome death. Look, uh, no matter how much you're suffering right now, no matter how much agony or pain you might be in, there is nothing wrong with you that a resurrection won't fix. And that's where you're headed. That's where we are all headed, is resurrection glory. Jesus says to us, you're always on my heart as I pray day and night to my Father. I can sympathize you with you in your pain and your sorrow. I know what it is like to be overwhelmed with grief. I will never leave you or forsake you. Those are Jesus' words to us. Even when you're not able to pray, Jesus would say, I am praying for you. Even when God feels far away, I am near to you. Even when you're down in the pit, even when you are in the deepest and darkest pit, I am lifting you up. Even when it seems that death will swallow everything up, we know that Jesus has already swallowed up death for us. Death is a defeated foe. Even when it seems darkness is your only friend, there is a friend who sticks closer, and that is Jesus himself. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you even for this psalm, the darkest of all psalms. We thank you that this psalm gives hope to the hopeless. It can give peace to those who are at unrest. It can give joy to the despondent. Because, Father, we know that ultimately Jesus is the answer to all of Heman's questions. And whatever Heman suffered, Jesus suffered infinitely more. And he did so on our behalf to bring us to you, to reconcile us to you, to forgive our sins, so that we can have ultimate deliverance and ultimate joy, so that we know whatever sorrow and sadness and difficulty we endure right now is not going to last. It's not forever. We know that what is forever is joy in your presence.
Father, we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right.